0: Hiya Elisha Jacob Smith. My name is Elisha Jacob Smith. Um, we're here on Wajak country, the season of Jilba, which is the time of conception, and we're transitioning into Camberang, the season of birth.
1: Partika would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land we record on, the Wajak people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season of the podcast, we are talking all things environmental. Today, I'm joined by Elisha Jacob-Smith, Noongar Ranger and lover of nature. We had a chat about connection to the land and the wonders of WA's flora and fauna. Starting off, what do you actually do?
0: So, what I do, well, that's a pretty big question. Yeah. Um, so, my role um, uh, in conservation is I work in a position uh, which is an Indigenous Ranger traineeship role, which is a partnership between the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions and the Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council. Oh, I've got to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, yeah, so basically what I do is I work in majority of the areas through um, DBCA. Um, So I work with fauna, flora, I work in fire, and I work in parks and visitor services also. And then I'm also acting in a position uh, in the Aboriginal Engagement and Heritage Unit, um, which is a project officer of Aboriginal programs at the moment.
1: You sound quite busy. Yes, it's quite busy. Do you have a favourite aspect of what you do? The thing that like when you're thinking about your week and all the things you've got to do in a week, is there a particular activity or day that you're like, yes, that's my favourite bit of the week? Oh, I would
0: have to say probably one of my favourite things to be able to do at work is um, going and checking on... um, I guess, endangered or threatened sites um, through the bush. Um, So some of the rangers that I get to work with, uh, they are quite often patrolling, looking for illegal activity um, (laughs) and also like, you know, documenting um, fauna and flora. Um, Those are probably the things that I look forward to the most because you, you get to peel yourself away from the desk Mm. and um, go out and do some really exciting um, work and then you know you come across amazing things like orchids and different types of birds and plants you may have never seen before or you've ever seen them in flower and you know that's probably my most exciting part of work
1: understandably do you find that it's more uh, desk work or getting out and about
0: Uh, Currently in my role, um, it's a lot of desk work. Yeah. Yeah. So because I'm working in the two positions at the moment, um, two days a week I'm working at a desk (laughs) and then the next three days of work are at my um, Indigenous ranger position. Um, And a lot of that's also at the desk uh, because I'm studying at the same time through that role. Um, So a lot of it's sort of doing assignments and then putting... Things together and answering emails, um, but then it, hopefully you know at least one day a week I get to get out um, into the bush mm. and um, do some on-ground uh, field work.
1: Probably reminds you why you are doing all of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Is it the kind of work that I don't know? When you are a little kid, you imagined yourself doing. Is it something you always wanted to do?
0: Yeah, I guess what I always wanted to do was just care for country, care for animals and the environment, Um, and so it's definitely along the lines of what I probably wanted to do. Although there's you know some sort of little adjustments that I would ideally you know love, but it's it's a fantastic job, Um, and yeah, it's very it's very exciting.
1: What does a typical day in the life look like for you if you are going out to do some surveys? A bit like today, you, earlier you were saying you were yeah, checking yeah, on some yeah. cameras. What's it like? What are the tasks you're uh, doing?
0: So the tasks that I'll do on an average day, going out and doing survey of field work, usually you would come into the office, let everybody know that you're going out to do field
1: work. <laughs> and <laughs> everyone's jealous, Make obviously. Coffee.
0: <laughs> um, and then of course it's you know rounding up the staff that you're going, getting all the equipment and printing maps, um, making sure that You've got the GPS points um, that you need for the surveys um, and then, of course, checking the vehicles and heading out. So basically, like today, what we were doing is retrieving cameras um, that were put out for a fauna survey in Wandu National Park, which is quite exciting.
1: What kind of things are you looking for?
0: Um, So the kind of animals that we're looking for uh, is basically anything that turns up on our cameras. Um, These ones are a part of a three-year rotation. um, And what they do basically is they give an estimation of the rise and fall of animal populations. So you might see things like, you know, lots of kangaroos, uh, yonga. Quora, the um, black glove wallaby, um, wetch, emus, um, sometimes foxes and cats mm. and different things. Um, and so that gives an indication of whether or not you might need to be doing um, some feral animal um, removal or, you know, in terms of how the fauna populations are going in those areas.
1: Is it, are you finding over time that the populations are decreasing? Is that generally uh-huh. the trend?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that contribute to the decrease in populations. But um, with you know the the minimising amount of bushland, um, and then obviously climate change is a major factor, um, and then the increased uh, predation from feral species. Yeah, a lot of our uh, threatened species, and especially the smaller marsupials, are heavily decreasing. Unfortunately,
1: does it feel disheartening sometimes?
0: It does. Um, So, I mean, I always try to remain optimistic. Yeah. um, But a lot of the time when you're, you know, going and doing all this work, you realise that people are the problem Mm. and then you think, oh, I don't want to be the part of the problem. (laughs) And then you think, I wish people would just go away. But, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's a big part in that. And, um, you know, I'm a uh, Newgar man. And so my people have been here for tens of thousands of years. um, And we played a major role in maintaining the biodiversity of of the land. And so it's not necessarily a a people problem. Mm. There is a way that you actually can have a positive effect on the environment and maintain it in a positive way. But unfortunately, I think, you know, we need to sort of focus on education um, to get there.
1: Uh, in terms of those things that you know, um, yeah. Aboriginal people have been doing to maintain biodiversity, mm. what is one of the things that you think that we should kind of try to encourage and reinstate to make sure that it's happening now?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think um, you know, a major thing is just minimising your footprint. Um, you know, whether or not you're sort of buying houses that are already built instead of um, new subdivisions and new developments is a major, a major thing. Um, in terms of uh, you know, if you are walking in the bush, keep to the tracks. Um, you know, don't don't take dogs and other um, domesticated animals into the bush. And I guess connect with the seasons of Nyungar buja. So, um, in and on Nyungar country in the southwest, here we have six seasons, um, and generally they align with breeding patterns, um, flowering seasons, and all the different things which. Um, you'll be able to see what different species need what during that time. and then that's that's a way that you can understand and respect those things and and leave them be because those specific species need that that time within that season.
1: Just to let you know, as we recorded this podcast episode, we were in the season of jilba, the season of conception. I'll let Elisha explain further.
0: After the season of fertility, which is Mokoru. And next, in probably about two to three weeks from now, we might start transitioning into Camberang, which is um, the season of birth.
1: Have you always had a strong connection to the environment?
0: Yes, I always have. Um, when I was a little boy, I, I guess I grew up in the bush. Um, you know, my mum, she used to run an Aboriginal tourism company in Mandra. And so I used to do a lot of the things. I used to do a lot of cooking and they used to make me dance and we used to go out and do tours in the bush, um, which was really exciting. Um, and then, say, uh, when I was a younger boy, she used to be in heavily involved in um, uh, the Ronnets Island Board Authority, so for Wajima. Um And I used to go over with her and... Um, be sort of left my own devices and I'd just snorkel <laughs> and swim. Cool. And, you know, I, I guess I always thought, oh, I'm one with the ocean and the land. And, <laughs> and when I grew up, I, I sort of realised that, you know, that is because of my identity as mm. um, as a traditional owner, as a as a Ngarr person.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that the values of your connection to land and as a traditional owner of the land are uh, kind of go hand in hand with? conservation points of view or are there sometimes points of difference?
0: Well, I feel that they do go hand in hand, but a lot of the time, um, you know, cultural perspective is completely overlooked in Mm. conservation. Um, When you're talking about a cultural perspective of conservation, you're looking at everything as a whole picture. Mm. There's no segmented sections where, you know, you've got like this silo effect where you've got all different areas of conservation that don't communicate with each other because, um, you know, in that family structure and and, uh, and the totem structure of Nyungar culture, uh, everybody has a role and responsibility to look after that, the specific species or item mm. um, that is given to them and then everything that um, relates to that. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the time now things are already being looked at from a small perspective an mm. individual. Um, and so that's probably the difference.
1: Yeah. Do you have an animal that is your totem that you are responsible for?
0: So I unfortunately was never given a totem um, which we say waranga um, and it sort of is, is told that, that uh, boranga will come to you and present itself um, I feel that my responsibility is a lot um, wider than just one, mm. one species unfortunately and um, Fortunate know, I, I'm species. very heavily connected to the water yeah. um, I am connected to fire and um, and the trees and all the little plants and all the little animals. And so I guess, you know, I I do have a responsibility to care for all things, Mm. um, which is a big job.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Do you find that people in general, so part of your job is talking to people visiting the national parks, I assume Mm -hmm. sometimes. Do you find that people have a connection to the environment or is that something that you have to kind of talk to them about?
0: Yeah, a lot of the time um, people are sort of visiting parks to try and find a connection, but Mm. they don't necessarily usually understand what that connection is. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the the ways of the world is sort of like a take, take, take society. um, Whereas like a lot of people, they do think that they can, you know, come and they they take and they don't have to give anything back. And Mm. I guess I don't understand the effects that they could potentially be having on um, so many different things that are, that are greater than themselves. So, you know, if I do get the opportunity to talk to visitors in the park um, you know, I, I tend to sort of try to, to talk to them about really small little species, like tiny little orchids or tiny little um, sunjews, um, or little things that you know you could potentially be crushed if you're walking around, um, and the importance of ants and different stuff. And, and I think that um, you know that gives a bit of a grounding to people when you're going, okay, it's not just what's up here; you mm. know, it's every every little thing that has a purpose. Um, and that needs to be respected as well.
1: Yeah. How do you encourage someone to say if, I don't know, a listener is going to go out into the bush and spend some time there, is there a way you would recommend kind of trying to take everything in and forming that connection?
0: Yeah. So we have a, um, a Nyunga word uh, which is called, we say, uh, which is deep listening. Um, and so what I recommend to visitors to the bush is just to find a nice spot and sit down there, whether it be by a stream or on a rock or somewhere where you're not going to be bitten by ants. <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, and then just listen, listen to the sounds of the birds, listen to the wind moving through the leaves, um, and then just spend that time to be fully immersed in that mm. um, and you know a lot of the time that might be where you, you'll find something different about yourself when you're listening to the bush
1: that's beautiful do you have a favourite place to visit?
0: I do have a favourite place to visit um, pretty much anywhere with water yeah really. you know, that's where I feel Deeply connected, but my favourite place to visit is probably John Forest National Park uh, when the water's flowing mm-hmm. and the beautiful smells of the fresh water. Oh, and so good. At the moment in uh, Jilba, transitioning into Kembarang, we've got um, the wildflower season. So beautiful. Everything's emerging um, and it's just beautiful.
1: We're going to take a little, little bit of a break okay. and have a look at some, I guess little bit silly questions. So feel free to take these as lightheartedly as you'd yep. like. First up, we've asked this of a few people actually, and I'm interested in your opinion, although I think that I might know it. Would you rather work with animals or people? Animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: brainer. Totally.
1: Do you have a favourite native animal?
0: Uh, My favourite native animal would have to be a little mandara, which is a pygmy possum, a western pygmy possum, and they're so adorable, the smallest possum in the world.
1: How small are they?
0: Ah, well, they probably grow about maybe two inches at at full growth as an adult size. Wow. Um, And they're only native to the southwest, Nyungar Wow.
1: That's so impressive. Do we have any ideas of why they might only be found here?
0: Um, I guess uh, there's a whole lot of things. I think um, th- the way that species developed, um, climate change, um, and then the habitat specific to what they need. In the southwest here, Newarbuja, we have uh, the the biggest biodiversity hotspot, and anywhere else in the world. Um, and therefore, you've got you know so many species of beautiful flowering plants um mandara needs uh the nectar from uh, plant species so like banksias mm-hmm. um Hakeas, and all different beautiful types of plants um so that's probably why they're isolated yeah, too yeah cuz their needs are here yeah the mm. needs
1: oh so cute all right well thinking about that then do you have a favorite plant
0: ooh favorite plant um so, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, I do have, I probably do have a favourite plant. Um, right now, actually, my favourite plant is um, Jerrup, which is the native lemongrass. Mm. Um, so if you go north towards the Pilbara and then further up, there's an abundance of native lemongrass. Um, although when you come to Yungar it's mostly isolated to um, the more arid areas and then through Katamora, the Darling Range. Um, and because of the high amount of disturbance, we only have a very small populations mm. and so you see a little plant speckled across and it's just the most beautiful thing um, fluffy little seeds and it's beautiful and I make a native tea out oh, of the cool. leaves um, and so that's that's why it's one of my favorite
1: well that was one of the questions that actually we wanted to ask if you have a favorite edible plant that you can find out
0: oh yeah so my favorite edible plant oh jeez. A snack for right now would probably be the roots of the Yanjit, which is the bulrushes. Okay. Um, and so basically uh, they have to be dug up from the ground and they grow in wetlands and swampy areas um, and they were heavily farmed by New York people. Mm. They used to use fire to control the amount um, and nowadays they're they're looked at as a weed um, oh. in water sources because there is no population control because they're not being eaten. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a high amount of starch Mm. and it's like essential for um traditional nyongar diet um it tastes a little bit like radish and the green part of the watermelon yeah when you go through the delicious and then you're like oh that what's that flavor that's what it tastes like Ah. and i really like it yeah Yeah.
1: do you cook it or do you eat it raw
0: yeah so you can eat it raw um or you can actually cook it and the way that um that new York people used to cook it back in the day a lot of the time would actually be to pound it up and then um, roll it in a ball add different seeds and little native berries and then actually cook it in the coals wow um, and they actually made that um, type of Yanjit bread um, for some of the early explorers and they heavily documented it. Um, And so basically it's quite exciting because the residue that's left by the Yanjit on grindstones of where they used to pound it up, um, it's been dated back to uh, roughly 27,000 years ago, which makes it one of the oldest forms of bread in the world.
1: That's incredible. I feel like that's... That is history that we should all know. That is fascinating. It is. And it's delicious. Yeah. I mean, I believe you. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> this one is quite off topic, but <laughs> because you are a ranger, yeah. what colour power ranger would you like to be?
0: Oh, Well... At the moment, I like wearing black, but I'd probably Ooh. have to say pink. Yeah, good. I don't know, just Same. to be extra. <laughs> <laughs> I support that wholeheartedly.
1: <laughs> when you've been out in the bush, uh, which is the most unexpectedly dangerous animal or plant? Oh.
0: I'd probably have to say the most unexpectedly dangerous plant is a parrot bush.
1: Oh, I don't know if
0: you know what a parrot bush no. but it's a type of um, banksia. I think it's... Um, Banksia cecilis Okay Yeah Um, And It's lovely for harbouring Little birds And the mandata And little species Because it's got these beautiful um, Flowers that are full of nectar And and thorny leaves Mm. And so it's quite heavily protected But It's very spiky and they quite often the, lead, the dried leaves will attach themselves to your clothes, oh, that and hurts. then when you get in the car and you yeah. sit down, it's stabbing you in the back or yeah. it's stabbing you in the leg, and you know, and and that's probably the most painful part of um, my job walking through the bush to get to areas for surveys. Um, but in saying that, everything has a purpose, and it is um, it is very important.
1: Why do you think? people should care about the native environment?
0: I think that people should care about the native environment because it's the very thing that keeps us alive. Um, you know, in our Nyungawe, uh, we have the mother and the father. So the, the mother is the buja, um which is the land, and the father is the ocean and the water. And so together, you know, they give us life to live on, on the earth. Mm. And so, you know... People do need to care about the environment because without a healthy environment, we don't have healthy people.
1: And what do you think is something that people can do to just help in a little way?
0: Um, I think what you can do to help is, I guess, um, the biggest thing probably is just... Um, self-education, you know, there's so much information out there about different species, um, and then different information about the bush. Um, so self-education. I'm um, just c- go and connect with the bush. You know, go on nice bush walks and understand um, what a healthy environment actually is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, because then that gives you an understanding of what is going wrong in yep. certain areas. Um, and the more the more you know, the more you know. Yeah. So, um, it, it, it gives you um a wider understanding
1: and forming that understanding will probably help influence decisions later down the track and maybe hopefully get people to care a bit more intrinsically. Yeah, true. Yeah. What's a part of I guess your job or your industry that could maybe improve a little bit? Maybe to do the job better or mm. something you've just started working on that as that goes on it will make things a bit easier.
0: Yes, so I think that um, probably in the conservation industry as a whole, I think the, um, I guess, involvement with Aboriginal people and um, traditional cultural ecological values um, entrenched into scientific conservation knowledge yeah. um, would probably be the area that I feel needs to be improved. It's, a, it's improved a huge amount since the beginning of, um, I guess, what you would say is scientific conservation yeah, Um, because back in the day, you know, I guess we weren't around or included in any of those sorts of decisions and understandings. Um, And so I think, yeah, the involvement is probably the area that that is... um, needs to be improved
1: yeah we have a lot of listeners who are scientists or interested in science and certainly people who are interested in the environment uh for those people who maybe then go oh that is a blind spot for me i want to understand more about um you know culture and make sure i'm including that is there a way or a place where they can find more information mm. it's okay if you don't know no. that's okay really. that's totally I fine guess,
0: like um what I'd recommend uh, for people that are wanting to widen their understanding of Aboriginal cultural knowledge, um, especially in conservation, is is just go go and ask people. Yeah, you know, um, whether or not you live in a community and you you know you might know elders or you go go to events. Um, so a lot of the time, you know, we we have um, obviously not during. COVID 19 time, um, but we have a lot of community events, NAIDOC week, um, sorry day, and different things like that. And, you know, there's always people around mm. um, that would be happy to answer questions um, as long as I guess you approach um, that question asking with uh, a mutual respect for the mm. person that you're asking the question for. Um, but, you know, Aboriginal people, unfortunately, are born educators. Mm. Um, yeah. And so we, you know, we, we're sort of born fighting to be included um, and to share our knowledge so that it um, brings about a mutual respect um, Mm. for the wider Australian people.
1: Can it be exhausting answering questions all the time?
0: It's very exhausting. Yeah. It's quite exhausting. Um, you know, obviously, it's something that I that I do. It's a normal thing. Yeah. Um, I did find with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is so important, mm. um, but a lot of people started reaching out to me and asking me quite serious questions. Yeah, and I think it was the whole thing was very emotionally draining on me because it brought up a lot of, um, I guess, trauma that's yeah. been sort of laying laying in waiting mm. um and so that was extremely exhausting um and i couldn't answer most of the questions yeah because I, I just physically couldn't yeah mentally couldn't you know and so um you, know, you do need to understand that um you know people do have limits as well
1: yeah and just everyone's a person yes just have some understanding we're
0: all just trying to live and have a better life so you know
1: totally What is an unrelated skill that you've learnt in your job? It's okay if you don't have an answer. I don't really know. I'm trying to think what my example would be. I've learnt my, about like email tone and trying to figure out how to be professional but friendly because that's a part of my job is cold, like I would have had to with you. Cold email people and Mm. figure out how to... Come across as myself, but Instead also of professional. Negative in there. Yeah. yeah,
0: I suppose um, you know that's sort of a lot of stuff that I worked out in a previous job. Mm. Um, so I actually used to be a hairdresser for 11 oh
1: wow years eleven
0: years. yes.
1: That's a long time yeah. of cutting hair. Yes. Did you enjoy it?
0: Uh, I did. Yeah, I really loved it. Um, but I I had a calling. Um, to give back to yep. the environment, um, to the land, and mm-hmm. so that's what what drew me to um, conservation. I always did do other stuff as hobbies, yeah. but it was sort of you know it was that the professional movement that I that I needed for myself. Uh, but during that time, a lot of it was um, answering phones, and yeah. um, appointments, and it's so easy to sound nasty on the phone yeah like you have to be overly positive <laughs> and like friendly yeah otherwise it's it's incredibly easy because yeah. you know um, a lot of the um language that we use as people is body language yeah and you can't see those things over email and um or over the phone and obviously email is a lot harder because um you don't even have the voice mm. tones. so um yeah it's quite I think so. Sometimes a little smiley face, which might not be professional to some people, um, but I think it goes helps. a long way to make it go from like, oh, this guy's really nasty and yeah. to the point to, um, oh, he's friendly.
1: Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. How did you decide to leave hairdressing?
0: The way that I decided to leave hairdressing and um, I guess transition into conservation um, jobs um, was... I've been thinking about it for a long time Mm. and I'd always dreamt of the potential for, you know, an indigenous ranger job that was, um, you know, indigenous specific um, because obviously, you know, a lot of, a lot of the things that I, that I care about are, you know, cultural values um, and then including them in conservation and in everyday life. Um, And so I was always like, Oh, I wish there was like some sort of Aboriginal ranger program here but there wasn't and then all of a sudden there was um and i was like um packing up putting down the scissors and off i go and so i think like the first round of um applications for that um position was actually highly competitive and and you know luckily enough i had a lot of experience um working in different aspects of planting and volunteering capacity Mm. um over Quite a long period that I was able to be selected, um, and yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, I still cut some people's hair, but it's not something that I feel like I've lost out on moving away from. Mm. Um, it's still something that I love, but I at the moment, yeah, I definitely love conservation Yeah. More. yeah. So you
1: were kind of working, doing the hairdressing, mm. but always dabbling in yeah, the conservation until your moment came. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. so glad it did.
0: And it came. Yeah. and yeah, it's been so exciting, um, I love it.
1: And to finish up with,
0: mm-hmm.
1: have you brought along a fun fact?
0: So, uh, my fun fact would be about microbats. Um, so, microbats are a small animal um, and they're one of the major pollinators of plant species in the world. Very exciting. And we have a huge abundance of different species here in Western Australia in the southwest, Newark, Um They're absolutely beautiful. But one fun fact about microbats is they're actually able to um, uh, freeze an embryo like most mammals. Um, so, say, if it's... Um, if they are inseminated um, from mating, um, they are able to go, oh, there's no food around, I'll just put that on hold. Whoa. Um, and the exciting thing is that once, that, when they actually mate, they will keep a reserve of semen what? just to the side, just in case that <laughs> something happens to that, um, the fetus, the wow. embryo, um, and then they can re-inseminate themselves in their own time.
1: That's incredible. Yeah,
0: so I would have to say that should be my biggest fun oh, fact. Oh,
1: yeah, that's a very fun fact. Um, wow. And you're like,
0: ooh, gee, that's crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's almost like humans, we've only just invented, like, sperm banks. But mm. animals doing it for ages. They just
0: got their own.
1: That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah
0: it's quite fantastic. Um, and just to think that a tiny little microbat, um, it has the space and you know to be yeah. able to do that and the um, complex body to yeah. be able to do that.
1: How um, small are they?
0: Uh, well, they just they raise in different sizes, um, so there's a few different types. I won't list them all; <laughs> I'd be all day. Um, but generally, the smallest ones will be potentially uh, about the size of a little pygmy possum, so a couple of inches with Aww. a with a wingspan that's. Oh, I don't really know. I don't want to say anything that's wrong. Yeah. Um, but anyway, proportionate. So they're, they're small. Yeah. Um, and generally the smaller ones they fly faster and they might have a um a lower frequency that our human ears can actually
1: hear wow
0: um and the larger ones they fly a bit slower um and their frequency is quite high so we actually can't
1: yeah human ears that is so cool yeah
0: and so you might um when you're laying in bed, depending on where you live. I know I used to live in an apartment in Coburn at one point and yeah. we had a microbat used to fly oh. past um, the window every night and huh. you'd hear it going beep, beep, beep. And so that indicated that it was probably a Gould's waddle bat, which is huh. a little tiny black bat um, and you can hear them.
1: I've never known that and I've... I grew up on a bush block. I've always thought that I had a really good connection to animals. I've never heard of microbats. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Yeah, I've really learned something. I can't wait to tell my dad. He'll be so excited. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was absolutely delightful.
0: No worries. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for listening to The Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitec.org.au. Particle is powered by Scitec and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjit Country.